Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. We're doing a show today about uh, Adolf Hitler. Now, you might ask why. That's a fairly good question. I think one reason is because we often use these days, we use Hitler as kind of a benchmark. Something is or isn't like Hitler. Something is or isn't as bad as Hitler. We don't often talk about Hitler qua Hitler. Uh, And I can think the other reason is because there's some very interesting scholarship uh, done on Hitler recently that we wanted to share with you. Those are probably our two motivating forces here. Uh, Let me tell you that in the second segment of the show, the second half of the show, we're going to talk about the fact that as Hitler and his inner circle began devising ways to pass laws enforcing racial purity and enforcing various kinds of racial uh, oppression and, and, and total obedience, Um, they looked to one particular nation as a model, as a place where it had been done effectively, sometimes also with very effective uses of violence. Unfortunately, that nation was the United States. Uh, Anyway, you'll hear more about that in the second half of the show. We want to talk a little bit uh, about the rise uh, of Hitler and kind of not just the rise of Hitler, but who, how Hitler came to be who he is, who he was. Uh, to help us with that, we, have, we are lucky, we are fortunate to have Thomas Weber, German historian, lecturer, and professor of history and international affairs at the University of Aberdeen. He's the author of Becoming Hitler, The Making of a Nazi. Thomas Weber, welcome to our show and our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So I think when uh, people, when American people think about this, if they think at all about it, uh, when they think uh, about the, the evolution, so to speak, if that's the right word, of Hitler, they think of kind of a steady progress, a straight line that moves to the right, so to speak, uh, in, in a fairly unbroken way. But I'm getting the sense from your work that, that Hitler's development was more a series of mutations uh, and, and perhaps some zigging and zagging. There wasn't a straight path from uh, Hitler of his youth to Hitler the Chancellor. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess that's also what first brought me to Hitler which was a kind of realization that the story that Hitler had always been telling and um, and, and that we had mo- mostly believed namely the story of um, Hitler being made um, in his teenage years and then being very much the man already who he would be in 1945 just wouldn't add up and the more I worked on Hitler the more I was surprised how um, how, how unsteady the process was how Hitler was for many years uh, fluctuating between different political ideas and uh, how Hitler for quite some time didn't really have a political compass. Maybe we can begin with World War I. Uh, in, in some narratives, that is the crucible that forges uh, the Hitler that we see later. Um, that's not exactly the way that, that you interpret it now. 
that's right. Basically, since the 1990s, people had believed that um, Hitler had been made by the experiences of World War One, that National Socialism really had been born in the trenches of World War One, that Germany didn't really need a tomb of an unknown soldier because Hitler was that unknown soldier. He emerged from the First World War with the, uh, very much the ideas that he would have um, in the Second World War. But as we now know, there was a kind of uh, a reinvention of, uh, of his own past, a story that Hitler would tell in Mein Kampf and elsewhere for political expediency, to tell a story of his polit political becoming. In reality, Hitler was um, still very much a man without a face politically during World War I, or largely without a face, someone who had no problems interacting with Jews, who certainly did not publicly um, utter any anti-Semitic um, ideas, and also, crucially, someone who was not a typical product of his uh, First World War regiment, but who was cold-shouldered by the men of, um, of his regiment for supposedly having been a a Tappenschwein, or rear area uh, pig, um, which was maybe unfair, but the the but politically it was of course not a very good story to tell. If you want to tell that you're kind of the personification of Germany's unknown soldier, if you have got to say that politically you didn't really know yet where you're going to move, and that everyone was uh, thought that you were a kind of a shirker who was having a comfy life behind the front. Yeah, say that there's a word that you use, uh, a German word for that, that has the word Schwein in it. What, what is that word? Etappenschwein. It yeah. means uh, literally um, uh, rear area pig um, or rear echelon pig. Um, the, the, the equivalent um, American word is an uh, rear echelon and then a word with an F. <laughs> okay. Or uh. M and F. <laughs> So, so his martial courage uh, was probably not his defining feature in World War One. And what, what we see is somebody who's kind of still on a search, right? He's searching for a, a political and personal identity. Absolutely. He is still trying to find a space in, in life. He's still finding even um, a personal space for, for, for himself. He had, uh, even though he had a uh, family, he had um cut all ties with his family during the war or prior to the war. During the war, he also cut um, all contact with his pre-war contact. So he's really kind of a man who's searching for ideas. This is not to say that he has no ideas at all. In, in fact, there is one idea that really runs, uh, which is a constant from his teenage years to the day he died, which was a kind of pan-German idea, which is basically just an idea that you would want to bring all Germans um, wherever they live together under one roof. And this is very much the idea of a kind of an Austrian-German. Uh, Hitler, of course, had uh, grown up on, in the German-Austrian borderlands, and he thought that all German speakers should, li should live under one roof. But beyond that, um, his political ideas were really not much developed. Um, Thomas Weber, is it, is it fair to say that even as Hitler is searching for a personal and ideological response to the cir circumstances he finds himself in from, say, 1919 and going forward from there, so is Germany and, and maybe so specifically is Munich? In other words, Germany, uh, is, is it fair to say that Germany is kind of doing the same thing? Uh, is, is leftism uh, the right answer? Uh, is some far more uh, rightward direction the right answer? 
I think that sounds right. Um, I think this is particularly true for the aftermath of the First World War, because the um, the First World War, of course, ends in disaster for, for Germany, and afterwards, people are really kind of searching for something new. This does not actually mean that they immediately all turn to the right. This is actually quite wrong. In, in fact, um, at the end of the war, people somehow, the, they're not really radicalized, but they also realize that the old world had become unsustainable. They don't even just want to, uh, to, to go back to the kind of pre-war years, because they somehow thought, well, obviously this didn't quite work. And so this is basically a country searching for ideas and where people try out different ideas, where people move from left-wing ideas to right-wing ideas, from collectivist ideas to liberal ideas, and back and forth. Um, so what you've got also, as as you're suggesting here, and in the case of Hitler, is doing the same thing, right? I mean, he he is having flirtations, uh, not just with socialism, which turns up in, in the name, ultimately, uh, of his party, but with a little bit with communism, too. That's just one of the ideas that's in the air. Um, yes, even though I'm, I'm slightly hesitating to answer uh, okay. uh, this question, because the, um, there were various um, stages of revolution in Munich after World War I, where Hitler, of course, is, and he serves all these revolutionary regimes, including the short-lived um, communist one, and he, when so many others jump ship and fight against this short-lived communist experiment, he's at least technically fighting for them, and uh, technically he, and he's actually also standing for election for a post within his uh, unit. At the same time, what I would say is, is that Hitler is flirting with different kind of collectivist ideas of the left and the right, as long as they don't deny the national principle. So he, Hitler is, I suppose, going back to what I said about being a pan-German Austrian, he does not believe in, in internationalism. He does think that there should be nations. But as long as you accept that there is nations, he is very much flirting with political ideas of both the left and the right, including radical left-wing ideas. Right. And, and I think why it's important, one of the many reasons it's important to pin this down and why it's important to us here in the U.S. to pin this down is that ultra conservatives now in the U.S., uh, when they want to besmirch or smear socialism, they will. I mean, for example, Dinesh D'Souza, who's an ultra conservative thinker uh, here in America, will say that Hitler was so committed to socialism that he changed the name of the German Workers' Party to the National Socialist uh, German Workers' Party, uh, that, you know, all the founders of fascism in Italy and Germany and England and France were socialists and, and leftists. And that's not quite right, right? This is more, uh, uh, particularly in the case of Hitler, uh, as you say, uh, somebody who's looking for a few ideas that could conceivably fuse together as opposed to some kind of defined commitment to socialism. I think that sounds absolutely right. And it's the, I think it's more an idea that Hitler is searching for certain kind of collectivist ideas of certain kind of uh, egalitarian commitment as long as they're within a nation or a race. And with that sense, there, he, he also looks at, uh, at, at, at left-wing ideas. But this kind of idea that they're all basically just socialists and then just kind of somehow all trick um, everyone else by pretending that they are not really socialist um, is, is something that 
I find unconvincing and I think it tells us more something about the radical right today than about the historical realities. Um, although, uh, although I don't really know exactly what to make of this, but so there's this book called uh, uh, A Time of Gifts. It's by an Englishman named Patrick Leigh Firmer who walked across Germany, we call it walked across continents in the early 1930s, was walking across Germany, I think, in 1934. And he tells this story about coming to some Rhineland town and going to a bar and meeting a guy who offers him a bed for the night. And he goes up to this guy's bedroom, and the walls are just claustrophobically plastered with, with what Le Firmer calls Hitleriana, just, you know, every kind of poster that you can find. And he comments on this, and the guy tells him that, and this is 1934, young guy, he says if he'd come here a year ago, it was covered with communist stuff, uh, and that he and his friends f- had flipped from being dedicated uh, communist sympathizers and singers of the Internationale uh, and haters of Nazis to dedicated Nazis, as he puts it, all of a sudden when Hitler rose to chancellor and they saw suddenly through Hitler that their former beliefs were all lies. And he says, Adolf is the man for me. And, and there there does seem to be, I mean, he the way that this guy is describing it, in 34 anyway, Hitler is so dynamic that he can get you to flip your political beliefs, you know, in, in the space uh, of, you know, six months. I'm wondering how persuasive you find that. I think there's two things to be said. I mean, first of all, um, Hitler had had an absolute talent, uh, particularly once he was in power, to present himself as somewhat different to everyone else. He to make pronouncements that people of totally political of politically opposing movements would all somehow think he, he is their man. He's the real Hitler. That people could uh, project all their kind of hopes and uh, and political wishes into them, which means that both people from the radical left as well as traditional conservatives would think that their Hitler is the real Hitler. The same would be true for mm-hmm. people who are monarchists, who are anti-monarchists, and mm-hmm. so on. So I think that's part of the story. But I think there is probably a bit more to the story than that. I think it's also a story of um, of a certain kind of um, of, of of overlap between um, uh, between national socialist ideology and, uh, and, and left-wing collectivist ideas. This is not to say that they are the same. This is not to say that um, the racism uh, and, and all that that would be part of, the national, of national socialism was also part of socialist or communist ideology. But in, ter- but in terms of uh, certain collectivist ideas, certain ideas of the economy, um, there were certainly um, overlapping ideas which I think made it possible for people to switch. And um, I mean, studies um, of National Socialist voting patterns have also shown that in the late 20s and early 1930s, a significant number of the working classes move from voting for either the communist or social democrats to, uh, to, to, to national socialism. It's not that they all move, quite to the contrary, but a significant subsection does.
I, I, well, actually, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, hold on to that thought for later. There's another part of that I want to ask you about in modernity. But let's just stay in the 20s and 30s uh, right now. So I guess another question is, when and where does the anti-Semitism come from? We, we have Hitler's account of it in the second chapter of Mein Kampf. I think uh, if we uh, use the term unreliable narrator, there can't be a less reliable narrator uh, than, than Adolf Hitler. Um, he describes this a, a, as a, a transformation into being a, a fanatical anti-Semite and that he sees that as, uh, in fact, a, a pretty good perspective to have, to be a fanatical anti-Semite. What do we know historically about where this comes from and to what uses it gets put? Mm-hmm. Historically, actually, emerged really very suddenly because, the, as we now know, in his Vienna years before the First World War, Hitler had close interactions with Jews and had no problems with, uh, with, with their interaction. Um, likewise, during the First World War, he did not express anti-Semitic ideas. Um, so anti-Semitism is at least not particularly important for, for Hitler. We can, of course, not know for sure what kind of latent anti-Semitic views he may have secretly harbored. One would imagine that in a world in which every, almost everyone, whether it's in Germany, whether it's the United States, or whether it's anywhere else, had some kind of anti-Semitic idea that Hitler would have been the one guy who didn't have any anti-Semitic uh, sentiments. But anti-Semitism wasn't particularly important. And that suddenly changes in uh, 1919. It suddenly changes in the year after the war. But interestingly, it happens very differently from the way it happens for most of most people in Munich after the end of World War One. The most popular anti-Semitism in Munich at that time is anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik anti-Semitism, because people uh, blame uh, the revolution on, um, on Jews. But that's the kind of anti-Semitism that Hitler doesn't really care uh, much about, at least at this point. His anti-Semitism emerges in the summer after his sudden political transformation and uh, his kind of political epiphany. Hitler's political epiphany um, or Road to Damascus experience was really the signing and the ratification of the Versailles Treaty, of the punitive peace that brought World War I uh, to an end. The point here is less whether or not uh, Versailles Treaty was too harsh or whatever else. That's not really my point. My point is that with the ratification, Hitler realized Germany really had lost the war, which, uh, which a lot of people hadn't really realized before. They thought it had been some kind of draw. And with that, Hitler asked himself two questions which become the guiding questions for him until the day he dies. How could Germany have lost World War I? And more importantly, how, how does Germany have to be recast in order to survive sustainably for all times in a rapidly changing world? Because Hitler does think that the world is undergoing a rapid transformation with, uh, with an emergence of kind of superpowers. And so Hitler then comes up with two answers. And uh, the first answer is, 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 is absolutely crucial in answering your question, which is that he, he comes, that, he, that his answer is the primary source of Germany's domestic weakness um, are the Jews. It's a pernicious, supposedly pernicious um, um, influence of Jewish ideas. And where Hitler really focuses here are questions of economy or political economy. His idea is, is, is that it's kind of a Jewish 
capitalism, Jewish finance, um, taking interest, that it is those kinds of ideas that, ha- that, ha- that have been brought to Germany by Jews and that had, sp- had spread and infected Germany and therefore made Germany less competitive internationally. And from that day onwards, Hitler is absolutely obsessed with trying to eradicate that influence from Germany. So right now we're talking to Thomas Weber. Uh, his book is Becoming Hitler, the Making of a Nazi. So, uh, Thomas, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about over the last year and a half here in America is how well people understand what's happening to them when it's happening to them. It's one thing, obviously, to have the historical perspective that we have on a situation, but to, you know, how possible is it for people to recognize a thing when it's in front of them? So I'm going to play a little clip for you. This is by a guy here in America who is, for the most part, an ultra-conservative commentator, but he's changed his stripes a bit, and during the 2016 election, he was uh, raising a flag of caution about Donald Trump and saying that people didn't quite understand what they were seeing And I'm going to now uh, let you hear a little bit of what he said. We all look at Adolf Hitler in 1940. We should look at Adolf Hitler in 1929. He was a kind of a funny kind of character that said the things that people were thinking. All right. That's obviously an oversimplification. But it did make me wonder, you know, at what point would a reasonably perspicacious person be able to look at Hitler and understand that he was a source of mortal danger? I mean, would that have been I mean, at what point in his rise would a reasonable person not terribly immersed in the situation be able to perceive that? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, The. I think the the answer really depends on 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 answering the question when would a reasonable person realize that Hitler is not using metaphorical language mm-hmm. because if you took Hitler seriously from the beginning then a reasonable person should as some people did um have been worried from the uh, right from the early 1920s, because then it would have been clear that from the early 1920s, Hitler was committing to totally changing the world that he was living in. But the problem was that people were, the majority of people were thinking that he was using metaphorical language, that the real Hitler wasn't really quite so bad. And in a way that, as a, I guess, if you look at the wider context of your question, that is also what makes things so difficult or dangerous for 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 the, for the present the problem is that populists tend to use similar kind of language populists tend to also use over the top language they tend to use often metaphorical language but the problem is that we only often know in hindsight which of these populists uh, were was just using metaphorical language, and which of these populists was using literal language all along, but where people just hadn't realized that they had used, that they had meant things literally. And I think this is why we should be so careful when this kind of language emerges, because we only know when it's too late what kind of populist stands in front of us. Right. Um, That's beautifully put. And I think it expresses a a quandary that we're facing right here in 2018, not only in the United States, but in lots of Western European countries as well. We're going to take a little pause here. Thomas Weber will be back. We'll be adding in the second segment uh, another voice to the conversation. So stay with us. (laughs) 
Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets, the Allies, the whole wide world around. To the battling British thanks, you can have 10 million Yanks if it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down. If it takes them to tear the fascists down. All right, we're back. Uh, we're having a conversation today about Hitler um, with Thomas Weber, a German historian, a lecturer, and professor of history and international affairs at the University of Aberdeen. He's the author of Becoming Hitler, The Making of a Nazi. In just a second, we're going to add to the conversation James Q. Whitman, Ford Foundation Professor of Comparative Literature and Foreign Law at Yale Law School, author of the new book, Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of the Nazi Race Law. Uh, before, though, we go to, to James Whitman, uh, I want to pursue a couple of more things uh, with you, Thomas Weber. Um, one of them, just to sort of build on the conversation we had at the end here uh, into the uh, previous segment, as I was doing some reading to get ready for today's show, I, I, I was surprised to see how in the 1930s Hitler was depicted here in the United States. Uh, and in some cases, he was kind of covered as I don't know. We there used to be this person here in the United States named Robin Robin Leach who had a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, uh, and 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 it was all about sort of you know their houses and their clothes and stuff like that. There there were like articles in American publications about you know Hitler as this kind of very tasteful Bavarian gentleman who'd done such a marvelous job of redecorating the Berghof uh, and all this kind of stuff. He was able to sort of pass himself off as kind of a political c- celebrity. Uh, as opposed to the person he was going to become, uh, I just—I guess my first question is: d- Does that conform with your understanding too? That there were an awful lot of people outside Germany who just didn't see what was happening. I think that sounds absolutely right, but I think the same is true inside of Germany as well. It's the um, that's—it's it's absolutely true that uh, that's how the Third Reich was trying to to portray itself. Um, and, and very skillfully so. The, the Nazis also very cleverly fed, um, fed American media with those kinds of images. Um, but even beyond that, we have got to, of course, bear in mind that when people had interactions with Hitler, he often presented himself like that um, as well. The, um, today we, we have got this image of the constantly raging and shouting Hitler in front of us, the kind of Hitler from the last 10 seconds of a two-hour speech where he's just screaming. And we forget that um, in the previous two hours of that speech, he had not screamed, and that, in fact, even in private interactions that people had with him, either politically or, or, or really quite, uh, literally privately, he sounded very different. Uh, differently. There's only actually one single um, secret recording of Hitler in private where he sounds very, very differently, where he sounds like just a normal kind of guy. But I think if we want to understand Hitler, we have to, we have to see more of this kind of Hitler, because it is this kind of more normal Hitler who helps us to understand how someone like him could do all the things that he did. If we just have this kind of shouting and raging Hitler, we will not understand how someone like Hitler can become possible. Right. And a man who was interested in popular culture to a certain degree, even popular culture here in America. We know that he liked Mickey Mouse. Uh, He liked the movie King Kong. He admired Greta Garbo. He liked Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. This is uh, 
not to necessarily draw any parallels between him and a political leader we have now who's very interested in popular culture, but one of the ways I think that 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 Hitler was persuasive by was by liking some of the things that a lot of other people liked. Absolutely. And and I suppose here there is actually a certain uh, similarity between uh, Trump and Hitler, which is not about a political ideology, but in terms of how they present themselves here, because in the same way that, I mean, on the one hand, Trump is, 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 is precisely not an average American by being a billionaire and, and all that, but by, by portraying himself as someone who has the taste of normal people, who is eating fast food, who is not uh, speaking fancy language, but who speaks like them, he functions in kind of the same way that uh, Hitler did, is, is that Hitler also portrayed himself as the guy who doesn't like fancy food, who's just an ordinary guy, who is speaking ordinary language. So in that sense, there certainly is a parallel, even even political ideology, of course, there's a world of a difference. Right. And obviously Hitler was not going to eat the fried chicken either. Um, so uh, let us add to this conversation James Q. Whitman. Oops, I almost dropped something there. James Q. Whitman, uh, who is the Ford Foundation Professor of Comparative and Foreign Law at Yale Law School, author of the new book, Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law. Uh, James Whitman, welcome to our conversation. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, this uh, uh, leaps kind of nicely uh, from what Thomas and I have been talking about, uh, uh, because, yes, Hitler was a little bit of a student anyway of things like Disney films, but he was even more of a student uh, of American history. And as he uh, and his inner circle gathered to begin strategizing about how to make the kinds of laws that they made uh, that they and they wanted to make as regards racial purity and the oppression of certain lesser peoples um, and the occasional use and more than occasional use eventually of violence to accomplish those goals. They had one particular nation that they looked to. He mentions it in Mein Kampf, right, that the United States is a place where they, they've really made some progress uh, in that regard. Tell us more about that. That's right. It wasn't just about Mickey Mouse. Uh, indeed, in Mein Kampf, Hitler describes the U.S. as the one state that's making progress, even if so far only minimal progress toward the creation of a healthy race state of the kind of order the Nazis wanted to create, too. And he wasn't the only one. Uh, it was, it was, this was a widespread view among Nazi lawyers and Nazis more broadly. Um, there were specific things that they wanted to look at and they were intrigued by. One of them was, were Jim Crow laws. What, what, what were Jim Crow laws to them? Well, they did take an interest in Jim Crow, although uh, they really, oh, and at some point early on in the uh, after the Nazi seizure of power, they were interested in bringing segregation of the American style to Germany. Um, but they moved away from that pretty quickly. Uh, I think those the measures of segregation that we associate with Jim Crow really didn't go quite far enough for the Nazis, but they found many other things to admire in American law. And it has to be said, not just things about Jim Crow, not just things about the persecution of African-Americans in the South. They saw things in uh, the law of, uh, on the federal level and in the law really of most of the states of the United States at the time. Uh, the U.S. really was the home of the most advanced forms of racist law in the world in the early 20th century, and the Nazis knew it. In describing this, it's important to uh, emphasize something that's too easily forgotten now. At the very beginning of the uh, uh, Nazi regime, the Nazis were not yet committed to the uh, extermination of the Jews. This was really not a, a political possibility. 
uh, in the in the early years uh, after the Nazis came to power. Uh, their aim was something else. It was coerced emigration. Uh, and it was precisely with the aim of encouraging the Jews, or really uh, encouraging, I guess, in, in quotation marks, the Jews to flee Germany uh, that they formulated the two, what we now think of as the two Nuremberg Laws of 1935, which were designed to make life in Germany so intolerable uh, that no Jew would stay. Um, Thomas Weber, um, how does all this sit with your understanding of what they were doing? I mean, I, I think it would be probably too much to say that the United States influenced uh, the Nuremberg Laws or influenced Hitler to make the Nuremberg Laws. He was probably going to do them anyway. But it is interesting that he was reading the United States and getting ideas. I think that's absolutely right. And um, I think generally James Whitman is absolutely right and, 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 and uh, has produced a wonderful book. The... Um, I think generally people don't un, uh, underestimate the role of America for uh, Hitler. And the, I think the, the influence goes even further. I think the, um, the initial politicization of Hitler that I spoke about earlier is basically when I mentioned that uh, Hitler thinks that there's an emergence of a world of superpowers. He ultimately sees that the Anglo-American world will be one of those super, superpowers or two of those superpowers. So for Hitler, the strategic challenge from 1919 to 1945 is to bring uh, Germany on equal footing uh, with the Anglo-American world. So in that sense, America matters uh, enormously. Um, and I also absolutely agree that Hitler is very much kind of a student of history and looks at other, at, at other historical cases in other countries for inspiration of how to solve uh, political uh, problems. So in that sense, I agree that the United States is a source for inspiration of how to solve certain what, is, what are perceived as uh, racial uh, problems. Where I might provide a slightly different answer is when it comes to saying that the Nazis really didn't know what to do with uh, with the Jews. I think with that, it depends a little bit on who we mean with the Nazis. I think that is true for a lot of the Nazis. This is certainly true for the kind of lawyers who uh, drew up um, these laws and who were, I think, very much in the same mindset as a lot of um, American racists would have done. But I would say when it comes to Hitler, um, I think there is a clear pattern that Hitler already has from the early 1920s a preferred final solution which is genocidal, but Hitler at that point thinks that that preferred final solution is just not feasible. And as he thinks it's not feasible, he looks for third, uh, second, and uh, third best solutions. And for that, he is absolutely looking for at uh, different countries. He's uh, looking in the early 1920s for um, at medieval Spain. Um, and uh, he certainly is looking and at, at America in the 1930s when it comes to trying to figure out how you can do this through laws and regulation um, to, to, to come up with this kind of second or third best final solution. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to spend the final segment of our show just talking to James Whitman about some of these very specific things in his book, the miscegenation laws, the one-drop laws, the treatment of Native Americans. We're going to come to that. But while I've got both of you here, I want to ask you uh, to, to maybe share a little bit uh, on 
a only semi-related question. And and obviously, it's always dangerous to project from one era to another. But but James Whitman, I mean, we now we have the spectacle uh, of these um, nativist movements uh, in Western Europe, uh, here in America. And, and, you know, if we had to pick somebody as kind of an ambassador, uh, <laughs> a, a, a toxic ambassador at that, I mean, Steve Bannon has turned up in Italy recently uh, for their elections. Last weekend, he was in France uh, speaking to the, um, the the far-right National Front Party, uh, saying, let them call you racist. Let them call you xenophobes. Let them call you nativists. Wear it as a badge of honor. Um, I guess I'm sort of wondering, you know, in your work, uh, James Whitman, looking at ways in which the uh, the Germans, the German Nazis uh, of the 1930s are looking at the United States. Is there a comparable conversation going on now, but maybe a little bit more of a two-way conversation? Between the Europeans and the Americans? Yes, think? between sort of these uh, far-right movements. It's, it's almost more of a feedback loop at this point, it seems. Uh, it certainly is. There's no doubt that they're in contact with each other. And I think, too, there's no doubt that we'd be fools not to worry when we read the history of the 1920s and 1930s, because really it begins in the 1920s. Uh, there's absolutely no question that we're seeing a revival, a recrudescence of things that went on uh, just a little bit less than a, than a century ago. Uh, I, I do think there are reasons... Uh, there were there were things that made the U.S. Uh, uh, an inspiration to European far right wingers back then uh, that are still true of the United States. One of the things that the Nazi lawyers about whom I write admired most about the United States was uh, its sheer openness to democratic politicization of the law. Uh, it's it's kind of no no holds barred uh, a political culture. Uh, which permitted what, from the point of view of traditionally trained lawyers, looked like entirely unacceptable forms of racism uh, to establish themselves in American legislation. That aspect of American political life is still with us. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's hard, for example, in a country like France, sadly not in Italy or in Germany so far, uh, for these populist movements to make their way into the, uh, you know, the... Uh, holiest of holies of power, but in the U.S. it's a lot easier because we have a kind of a uh, an unbridled democratic tradition that um, that that uh, means that we uh, can put uh, find fewer of the bridles on uh, put fewer of the bridles that the uh, that others do on these kinds of movements. And, and Thomas Weber, how does uh, the present moment look to you in Germany? We see the ADF rising and sort of cannibalizing some other more conventional political movements pulling adherence away from them and towards uh, its particular ideology. I, I don't know. What do you see there that either does or does not make you think of what you've studied? If I could just say very briefly, just uh, as to the question about Steve Bannon, I think on um, there's certainly very much the American far right looks to the European far right. I think the European far right, however, looks far less to the American far right. I think they look to the American far right to people like Steve Bannon for tactical inspiration, but I think the European far right is actually fairly anti-American and looks far more for inspiration or has far more admiration uh, for uh, Russia. So I think it's not quite a mutual love. Um, but um, as far as um, your question is concerned, I would say the... I don't think that the that AfD is comparable to the Nazis. There are certainly there's a sm certainly a small subsection where there are um, overlaps, but I think where I see more the parallel is on how the fabric of liberal democracy has been undermined, how a 
politics of adversaries has been turned into politics of enemies, how the kind of the liberal norms um, have been undermined. And uh, there I see strong, um, uh, strong parallels between the 1920s and what we're experiencing in Europe, North America, and the rest of the world now. And so I think in that sense, we should be very worried. We're going to take a pause here. I want to thank very much Thomas Weber, uh, who's been with us here for the first two segments uh, of this show. His book is Becoming Hitler, The Making of a Nazi. We're going to spend the final segment talking to James Whitman uh, about uh, his book, Hitler's American Model. We'll be back. We're going to tear Hitler down. We're going to tear Hitler down someday. We're going to bring him to the ground. We're going to bring him to the ground. We're going to bring him to the ground someday. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Julius Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Anthony Hopkins. On tomorrow's show, the nose went to see a wrinkle in time. And now, back to Colin. Right. We are still talking about uh, Hitler today. Uh, for the final segment, I'll just be talking to James Whitman, a Ford Foundation professor of comparative and foreign law at Yale Law School and the author of the new book, Hitler's American Model, the United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law. So, um, James Whitman, uh, I, I want to just run through a, a few areas of this. One of the things that the n- uh, Nazis look at is the American law on miscegenation, where if I understand it correctly, the United States is the maybe the only country in the world at this point that has a law uh, issue that can potentially impose criminal penalties of people of different races who marry. Yeah, that's it. The Nazis did research. They went looking for countries that could offer them models, and the U.S. was the only model, or the state, really the law of 30 U.S. states, were the only models that they could find. Uh, the idea that the races shouldn't mix, that there shouldn't be uh, marriages between the races was pretty widespread in the world at the time, um, uh, notably really in the Anglo-American world more broadly. Uh, we find things like that in Australia, for example. What was distinctive about the United States was that they offered uh, exactly what you described, uh, the example of law that penalized and penalized very severely uh, mixed marriages up to and including uh, most famously at the time and still really the law of Maryland, which threatened those who entered into mixed marriages uh, with 10 years of prison at hard labor. Uh, the Nazis had been demanding criminalization of mixed marriage f- for quite a while, really since at least 1930. Uh, um, and uh, they were, in particular, the most radical Nazis were uh, quite happy to be able to cite the American uh, precedent. So there's this thing called the Prussian Memorandum uh, in 1933. It's the precursor to the Nuremberg Laws that we've already referenced. Uh, it it uh, outlines three ideas of crime, race, treason, race endangerment, and causing harm to the honor of the race, which seems like a rather abstract uh, idea. But once again, they're looking at least a little bit at Jim Crow laws f- for that idea, right? Yeah, well, they're they're German lawyers. They deal in abstract ideas no matter what. Um, But yeah, they were very interested in Jim Crow and that the Prussian memorandum that you've mentioned uh, cited Jim Crow uh, segregation expressly uh, as offering, uh, as opening the path for uh, the new sort of race-based society that they hope to create in Germany as well. Uh, Although, and here's one of the great ironies that I discovered, uh, probably the greatest in doing the research for the book, they regarded American Jim Crow segregation as going further than they would want to go themselves. 
as they observe there in the Prussian Memorandum, uh, segregation applies to private life as well as public life. Uh, that's a bit too much, they say. It's not necessary. Uh, uh, fraternization between the races should be banned only in public. That's only the first example of several in which the Nazis thought the U.S. just went too far, was too racist for Nazi Germany to follow. Well, as long as we're uh, walking down that path, let's talk about the one-drop uh, concept uh, here in the United States. That's another thing that uh, they thought was uh, going a little bit too far. Maybe for those who don't know, explain that one-drop-of-blood notion. You bet. Uh, so uh, American law, precisely because it concerned itself with relations between the races, had to define who counted as a member of which race, um, and most especially who counted as black um, for that purpose, the states came up with a variety of definitions, the most extreme of which, the most severe, I guess you could say, of which was the one-drop rule, according to which any person with one drop of black blood in that person's veins counted as black in the eyes of the law. Um, uh, all of these American definitions, I should emphasize, were more severe than anything proposed by the Nazis themselves. Uh, as for the one-drop rule, uh, it's quite remarkable. The Nazis regarded that as somewhat shocking. They described it as inhumane. You can't do that to people. Um, another thing that the Nazis are interested in is a concept, concept they call Lebensraum. Uh, and, and, and maybe you can, first of all, help us understand that idea and then how they looked to uh, the, the, the so-called settlement uh, of the American West and the treatment uh, of indigenous peoples as kind of an interesting tool. Uh, yeah, that's a disturbing matter as well. Uh, yes, the Nazis were uh, in foreign policy, um, were insisting on their on their really God-given right, they weren't very religious, but they would have said God-given right, to seize new lands for the Germans as they defined them for racial Germans. Uh, they called those new lands Lebensraum, exactly right, a living space. And they looked to, to the east to acquire that living space. It may be worth mentioning, as long as we're talking about parallels with the U.S., that this fascination with the land also showed up in their slogan, Blut und Boden, uh, blood and soil. Uh, uh, which was, of course, chanted at, Charl at Charlottesville. Um, here again, when it came to conquering toward the east or, or acquiring eastern acquisitions uh, and exterminating the local populations, they believed they had a model in the United States already in the 1920s and then during the you know, nightmare years of the 1940s. Uh, Hitler and other Nazis frequently mentioned the extermination of Native Americans in the U.S., uh, they were, uh, to follow what Thomas Weber said earlier on, eager to establish themselves as a superpower, and the U.S. was the model of a continental superpower, one that had created its empire not by founding colonies overseas, but by expanding, uh, uh, well, westward in the U.S. case and eastward in the case of Nazi Germany. Um, uh, I, I can't remember where I saw it, whether it's in Mein Kampf or someplace else, but the, Hitler even has this thing where he says something about how the Americans had uh, gunned down or shot down millions of redskins and reduced them from a population of millions to a population uh, of hundreds of thousands, right? There's just sort of a, a, a kind of vivid description of clearing out uh, people so you have enough space to do what you want to do. Yep, that, that's from a political speech in 1928. Uh, that is right after the, the publication of the second volume of Mein Kampf. So, I mean, in case anybody has any doubt about whether any of this can be possibly true, I mean, first of all, there's plenty of documentary evidence of this, but also um, there was sort of a study trip, right? There was a, a delegation sent here to the U.S. to get an up-close look at some of this stuff. Do I have that right? You do. I wish we knew more about what happened during this study trip. But uh, a week or so after the Nuremberg Laws were, were promulgated, 45 Nazi lawyers uh, set sail on a study trip to the United States. Uh, um, 
Uh, as I say, sadly, we don't know what kind of information they brought back with them, uh, but we know what they hope to find because they have been studying America quite intensively uh, over the previous couple of years. Uh, uh, the story is, is entertaining. They, they, they booked themselves a hotel in the Garment District in New York, which uh, in retrospect, seemed like a foolish choice. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, they were they were seen giving the the Hitler salute in their hotel by Jewish fur merchants, and then ha- had to face a six hour uh, angry demonstration about which they complained very indignantly. I guess one thing I'm curious to know is how people react to your thesis, to what you're reporting to them. In other words, this does run very counter to the narrative that most Americans embrace that, you know, Donald Trump and his kind notwithstanding, this country is a melting pot. It is the place that has been the most open to people coming here from other lands and making their fortunes. And uh, so, I mean, the notion that Nazis would have been studying us for pretty much the opposite purpose for uh, trying to figure out how one could purify, how one could uh, define race and then make it uh, either a a cause for exaltation of one group or denigration of another group. It kind of runs counter to the national story we tell ourselves. How do people react when you tell this, this story? Well, well, it does. I should begin by saying that, of course, there's a lot of truth to the to the to the uh, accepted national story. The U.S. in many ways has been an extraordinary uh, home for uh, liberal values and constitutional protections. So it's not that everything about the U.S. Uh, uh, somehow can be reduced to the things that interested the Nazis, but the things that interested the Nazis were there. Uh, as for the reaction, I expected to be attacked, honestly, both in the U.S. and in Germany. Um, it hasn't turned out to be the case. Uh, I would say pretty much uniformly, people have accepted the the I don't know what you want to call them claims have have accepted the truth of the of the research that I present in the book. I, I think because, as you said earlier, as Thomas Weber said earlier, uh, there's just so much material there once you go looking that it becomes very difficult to deny uh, that what took place took place. Uh, it's difficult, of course, for the Germans to accept it, too, because one thing no German wants to do is to give the impression of making apologies for the Nazi regime. Uh, but in Germany as well, so far, people seem seem to accept uh, the, the truth of what I have to say. All right. Well, uh, we thank you very much, James Q. Whitman, a Ford Foundation professor of comparative and foreign law at Yale Law School, author of the new book, Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law. We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks very much to Josh Nalea. Uh, he is the person who has orchestrated this show. And of course, we've had Colin Wolf on the board. Uh, we're going to go uh, now. Uh, I think what we're hearing in the background right now is a contemporary German kind of anti-Nazi, anti-fascist uh, popular song. So, so so that you're not alarmed anyway when you hear someone singing in German. <laughs>